we live in a land that is known for, proud of, and rejoices in freedom. We live in a land where freedom of all sorts is celebrated every day. We live in a land where, if you watch the news at all, that we see that some freedoms are being challenged, some freedoms are being threatened in the world in which we live in, in our own country, in our own culture. We just talk a lot about freedom. So does the Scripture. Sometimes, though, I think the freedom we talk about and the freedom that the Word of God talks about are not always the same thing. Sometimes we see freedom as just a no constraint at all. I'll do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I am free to do what I want to do to please myself. And, and sometimes people will even take the scriptures that talk about freedom, like this passage that we're going to look at this morning, and they'll say, see, we're set free from the law. We're set free with, well, from any kind of need to be obedient in any way. We can just do what we want to do, be happy, be, have our pleasures fulfilled in any way we want to. We are, we are set free. I want you to know you are set free. I want you to know that the Scripture makes it very clear that, that in Christ, and Paul's going to talk about this in, in, a, in Romans chapter 8 in just a minute, uh, the Scripture makes clear that you are free. But that freedom does not mean free to just go out and do whatever you want to do and free to, to be able to, to, to sin greatly, if you will. As a matter of fact, that freedom means that you are now set free to do what you could not ever do prior to being set free. And, and that freedom goes in line with being what God created you to be and what God, God called you to be when in your flesh and in your lost condition, you could only do just what was against the purpose and will of God. And, and Paul wants you to understand, in the Christian life that you have been given, when you are in Christ, as Paul talks about over and over, as the Scripture talks about over and over, as we've looked at in this Union with Christ series, when you are in union with Christ, then you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And there's a radical change that takes place that enables you to do that which you never could do before. I, I sometimes use the, the illustration of, the, of, the, of a train, uh, you know, a, a railroad train. We all see those going about, and, and there's one thing about a train. It always goes in the same place. I've not seen any trains going up down Oak Leaf Lane. Uh, I've not seen any trains on 27 or, or 80 or, or any other highway around. The train is on its tracks. It is, it is limited, but it is free. It is free to go with its strong power. It's free to go in, in the same direction. It's free to carry monstrous loads of things as long as it stays on the track. When it gets off the track there's a problem. The freedom we have in Christ is not a freedom just to go here and go there and do whatever we want to do. It's a freedom to be what God has called us to be. Several things I want you to understand before I read this passage, just four verses, but before I read this passage, several things I want you to understand about the whole concept that Paul is talking about of no condemnation and freedom here that all go together. First of all, you need to understand that life in Christ is not a superior religion. 
you'll, you'll sometimes hear people talking about that, 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 well, you know, you have all these world religions, you have all these, these things that talk about God and ways to God, but Christ and Christianity is superior to all the others. Christianity is not superior to all other religions. Christianity is God's alternative to human religion. It's God's alternative that says, this is truth, this is the way to God, this is the way to righteousness and holiness, and this is the way that God intends for you to walk. It's not a superior religion, it's an alternative to human religion. In God's great love for us, we need to understand what Paul is going to share very clearly here in these verses. In God's great love for us, God is doing what religion cannot do, what the law cannot do. God is doing in your life, if you are in union with Him, what you could never do on your own. It only comes through knowing Him and walking in Him. He is liberating us from the failure of religion and create, recreating us in the image of Jesus Christ. Think about that. God is, is liberating us from the failure of religion. And recreating us by His grace and by His power and by His work in the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. This transformation is, more glory, is a more glorious miracle. Hear this. It is a more glorious miracle than even the creation of the universe. When we think about God's great miracles, we we read Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light, and he spoke, and things began to happen, and by his word, he made everything that there is, out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. But I want you to understand, as great a miracle as that is, God's miracle of work in your life to transform you is a more glorious miracle than even creation is. In Christ, we have a new status. In Christ, we have a new identity and a new future. God has given us his life-giving spirit when we are in Christ. I like what Ray Ortland in the conference I was, that the, uh, the pastors went to back uh, last month, really almost two months ago now, in Orlando, we went to the Gospel Coalition. I was in a, a workshop with Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and I love the, the statement that Ray said in there. He said, you need to understand that when we are in Christ, we have been supernaturalized. You never heard that word before. I don't think you'll find it in the dictionary, but it's a good word. When we are in Christ, we have been supernaturalized. God has entered our life and has changed us and made us something brand new. But yet there are a lot of Christians who still struggle. There are a lot of Christians who don't glorify God and enjoy God the way we were intended to. And part of the reason for that, at least, if not the main reason for that, is we tend to not look beyond ourselves. We, we tend to look within. You know, we, 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 oh, some of the great slogans of America is, well, just follow your heart. Just do what feels right. You know, just, just go on your own, own way. Find your own path. Do your own thing. Well, I want to tell you something. If you follow your heart, you'll be led astray. Because the Scripture is clear, the heart is deceitful, and the heart is sinful, and the heart is, is still has that 
flesh, that sin dwelling in it that, that Brother Todd read about a few minutes ago out of Romans chapter 7. We, we struggle if we just follow our heart. And if we turn inward and say, I'm just going to look within myself. I'm going to find the strength within myself. You will not find it. Because it's only found in Christ. Now, Christ dwells within us. But you don't find that just by turning in and saying, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better. As a matter of fact, when we look within ourselves, we either become very demoralized and we, we find demoralizing failure, or, or else we may even find the illusion of success, which could be far worse, when we just tend to trust and believe and look to ourselves. Many Christians live in either self-hatred or self-admiration. Either way, they're bound up within themselves Far too little certainty and far too little joy. You know, we, we look around and, and I see Christians that aren't joy-filled. And, and I, I find myself sometimes not expressing the joy that I, I ought to have in Christ. And, and, and too often we kind of say, well, you just ought to be joyful. You know, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And, we, and sometimes we just kind of admonish one another when we're kind of down or are not where we ought to be. We say, well, just rejoice. Just have joy. I want to tell you, joy is not a commodity in and of itself. And admonishing someone to just have joy, even yourself, is kind of a futile exercise. We have to focus to find joy. We have to focus on the real source of joy. We have to focus on where the joy comes from, and that is being in Christ and focusing on Him. So I've tried to come even in my counsel, and people who are down to say, uh, not to say, well, you know, you just ought to have more joy. You ought to know. Man, you just ought to have joy. Just saying, you ought to know Christ more. You ought to look to Him. You ought to trust in Him. You ought to quit trying to do it yourself and look outwardly toward Christ and say, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your grace. Because one thing Paul's going to make clear here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, is that the gospel emphasizes what God does, not what we do. The gospel doesn't say try harder. The gospel doesn't say be more moral. Now, if, if you understand the gospel, you, you will be more moral. But morality is not the goal. Knowing Him is the goal. Walking in Him is the goal. God, in all the fullness of His being, is all we need, and it's everything that you have if you are in Christ. Now, to me, that's encouraging. To me, that's an encouraging statement to, to bring joy, to know that, that the gospel says, here's what God has done in Christ, and God in all the fullness of his being is right there for you, with you, in you, working for your, for your good and for his glory. So you might enjoy him more, you might walk in him more. So Paul comes to this passage. Now, you know how I love Romans the whole book, but if I, if I zero in on one passage or one chapter, it's chapter 8 to me that is the heart of Romans. And hear what Paul says in, in verses 1 through 4. We looked at verse 1 last Sunday. Therefore there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now if you stop there, you might say, well, then... There's no condemnation. I don't have to think about being holy. I don't have to think about being righteous. I don't have to think about Christ-likeness. I, I, there's no condemnation. 
I'll just do my own thing and, and, and not be under condemnation. Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says there's there now no condemnation. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his son. Sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is the flesh of Christ. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, now there, obviously there are some questions that rise out of reading that, that, that you ought to be asking yourself as you hear those verses read. One question is, what is the law powerless to do? What is Paul saying here that the law given by God through Moses, through his prophets, expounded for thousands of years, what is it that the law is powerless to do? A second question you want to ask is, why is it powerless to do that? Why can't it do what we want the law to do? Why can the law not do what you would think it'd be able to do? What limits it? Thirdly, what has God done to replace the failure of the flesh? Fourthly, how does God's initiative transform us today? Because we want to understand it more than just what he did in Paul's life. We want to understand what Paul is saying he is doing today in your life and my life if we are in Christ. What does that mean? How do we understand that? How do we walk with that? Well, first thing I want you to see is that Paul quickly in verse 2 ties with verse 1 the concept of liberation and no condemnation. These are two great blessings that are ours when we are in Christ. When you have trusted Christ, when you are born again, when you are given new life in Christ, these are the two great blessings that come with it. We're, we're liberated from the law of sin and death through Christ. And we're no longer to be under the law. That is, we give up looking for either justification, rightness with God, or sanctification, spiritual growth in the law. That's what it means to not be under the law. We quit trying to find our standing with God by obeying the law. You, you look around you. We're still infiltrated everywhere by Bible Belt religion. I won't even call it Bible Belt Christianity because it, it, it fails to understand many times the concept of grace and the concept of God's glory. It's just a religion. And it, it looks at the law. It, it doesn't necessarily say, now, here are the Ten Commandments. I'm going to try to keep those every way I can. But it, but it builds, builds its own law many times and says, as long as you don't do this and don't do that and don't do this, then you're, you're doing all right with God. There may be a hard, cold heart that's embittered against people and, and is a gossiping heart and is a heart that lusts after every pleasure that they can get a hold of. But as long as they, as long as they keep it externally motivated toward, you know, I'm showing the right thing, I'm showing that I'm, I'm really being good, that I might be right with God. Paul says, I want you to understand, you've been set free from that kind of bondage. You've been set free from the law, being under the law, trying to earn your salvation with God. You've been put under no condemnation, and you've been liberated, and you need to learn to live that way. Paul is really concentrating on that and explaining that in verses 3 and 4. The first fundament and fundamental truth which Paul declares is that God has taken the initiative. 
to do what the law, even though it was God's law, even though it was a good law, God has taken the initiative to do what the law was powerless to do. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. I said one of the questions you've got to ask is what was the law powerless to do? The law is powerless to make you holy. And folks, in the final analysis, and I realize in sophisticated 21st century, we don't talk a lot about holiness. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, the law is powerless to make you holy and to give you holiness and to give you righteousness. And, and if you don't have that, if, if you're not holy, if you're not being made righteous by the power of, of an internal living God, then you don't know him and you won't see him. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, without holiness, no one will see God. Without holiness, personal internalized holiness imputed by the Spirit of God in your life, there is no hope for seeing God as an eternal home, an eternal being. I mean, that is what, that's what God is doing in the believer's life. Call it sanctification. Call it making holy. Call it changing you. Whatever you want to call it. Paul said, I want you to understand, you've tried it through the law. The, the Jews tried it through the law. The Gentiles even tried to do it through the law. They'd go through the rituals. They'd go through the things that, they, that, that the Jews said needed to be done. And they'd even come to the, to the temple, even though they had to sit in, stand in an outer court. They couldn't really get close. But they did all the right things legally, and it didn't make a bit of difference in their life. Didn't change them at all. It just made them frustrated, and either they were like Paul before he came to Christ, they were glorying in the fact that, hey, in everybody's eyes, I'm a, I'm a righteous man, but knowing that internally he was dying until he met Christ. So what's the law powerless to do? It's powerless to make you holy. I don't care how hard you try to obey it. I don't care what your standard is. I don't know if you say it's the Ten Commandments or it's the Beatitudes or it's, or it's your own your own standard. You know, I've had people tell me before, well, you know, I just I think I'm all right with God because I just live by the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Sounds so pious. Sounds so good. And, and then I, I asked them the obvious question. I said, so you're telling me that you treat everybody exactly how you want to be treated. Every single time, without exception, you, you, are, you are good to people and kind to people and gracious to people and, and you never lose your cool, you never cheat anybody, you never, you never lie to anybody. You always treat people the way you want them to treat you. Well, not always, but, but I, I try real hard. You, you've condemned yourself right there with your own standard because you can't do it. That's law. But Paul says what the law couldn't do because it was powerless. Why was it powerless? It was powerless because of the flesh. Remember what, you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter said, Lord, I don't, I don't care who comes after you. I don't care if it's an army. I don't care if it's the whole Roman army. They'll have to go through me. I'll, I'll stand with you. I will be here, and I will strike them dead as many as I can before they get me. 
you got to know Jesus, chuckled. And he said, oh, Peter, spirit's willing, but the flesh is so weak. Flesh is so weak. Peter, you don't even know what you're saying. You talk big, but your life doesn't match up, and it will not match up if you're depending on your own strength. Paul says the law is powerless because of our flesh. What, Paul, what, what Todd read from Paul's seventh chapter. Paul says, you know, I, I struggle with this. I, I find myself doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I want to do and, and, and know I should do. And, and, and it's a struggle in this thing because sin still dwells in me. Flesh still is a part of my life. And I struggle with that. I love how he puts it. It shows what God has done to replace the failure of the flesh right here. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. If you want to circle things and underline things and highlight things in your Bible, do those two words, God did. It's very similar to what Paul said to the Ephesian Christians when he said in chapter, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, after saying, you know, you walked according to the counsel of this world, according to the pre- prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among, who, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. Those are two other words you ought to have underlined, circled, highlighted, clarified. But God, being rich in mercy... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He made us alive together with Christ. In union with Christ. In Christ. You see that? That's what he's saying here. What the law couldn't do, God did. How did he do that? How has he done this to replace the failure of the flesh? Well, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's the cross. It's Calvary. That's where God accomplished atonement. That's where God accomplished propitiation for your sin. That's where God dealt with the wrath that had to be poured out on sin, and he poured it out on his son that all who believe would not have to bear that wrath. That was, that was the toughness of the cross, folks. It wasn't the nails in the hands and the feet. It wasn't the spear in the side. It wasn't hanging there suffocating. That's bad as it was. But that wasn't, the, that wasn't the horrors of the cross. The horrors of the cross was that he was there, he was there hanging there as an offering for sin in your place and my place. So to replace... To, 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 accomplish what the law couldn't, weak as it is through the flesh, God did by sending his own son into the world to become that salvation. And listen to how he says it then. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see the beauty of Trinitarian salvation in those verses? The Father sent the Son who sent the Spirit that we might walk in Him, in the Spirit. 
The Father, the creator of all that there is, sent his only son, his only begotten son, because of his great love for us, into the world that he might die as an offering and might ascend back to the Father, and the Father and the Son might send the Holy Spirit who will dwell among us, not leaving us as orphans, not leaving us without need, but to dwell within us and show us what holiness, what salvation, what sanctification as well as justification is all about. Paul really unfolds it with five statements there. We've looked at them. I want you to hear them again. I want you to see these clearly, these five statements. First came the sending of his own son. For thousands of years, sacrifices had been made on an altar. Animals without blemish. Animals offered to God for sin. On the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial lamb was given, and, and there was also a, a scapegoat that was taken out with the, having laid their hands on them, saying this is the sins of the people taken out into the wilderness. I mean, they, they dealt with, they tried to deal with sin by sacrifice, and, and it carried with it a certain symbolic nature, but it did not carry with it an effectual nature. So the sacrificials couldn't do what needed to be done. The sacrifices were temporal to point to one great sacrifice that came 2,000 years ago when God, in the fullness of time, just at the right time, sent His Son. So that's how it began, the sending of His Son. Secondly, it's the sending of the divine Son it involves God's becoming incarnate, a human being, and expressed in the words there, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, now that little word likeness is important there, folks. In the likeness of sinful flesh. It's not in the likeness of flesh. He did come in the flesh. Now, some of the, the Gnostics said in, in Paul's day, in John's day, they said, well, you know, God couldn't really have flesh. So he just came kind of as a phantom. He, he, he looked like he was a man. He looked like he had flesh and blood, but he really didn't. He was just, he was just an, an appearance of a man. And, and others said, well, he, he was a man, but he had a sinful nature to him also. And they, they struggled with how God could have that. And so they, they just kind of came to the thing, well, that really can't be fully God. That, that he, had a, he had a human nature, it was a sinful nature, but at his baptism... The Spirit came upon him and kind of took care of all that sinful nature. And then when he died on the cross, the Spirit departed from him because the Spirit of God can't die. And so you had these groups arguing over it. Paul, Paul settles it right there. He said he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did come in the flesh because he had to. He had to be tempted as you and I are. He had to go through the temptations in the wilderness and the temptations that were brought on, that, that he might identify with us, that he might sympathize with us, and then that he might die without sin. That's the whole concept of, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in the likeness of flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was just like us in every single way, except he did not have sin. He did not have sin. Third thing that Paul wants clear is not only did God send his son, not only did he send him in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he sent his son to be a sin offering. 
It's the only reason Jesus came. He didn't come to be a precious little baby in a manger, although he came that way. He didn't come so that we might say, oh, there's great moral teaching and and, you know, no man has ever spoken like him before. And, and if we'll just follow his moral, te- comes that law again. If we'll just follow his moral teachings, and then we'll be all right. He didn't come to just give us moral teachings. He didn't come just to do miracles. That we might be wowed. Wow, 5,000 people fed with a little fish and a little bread. Wow. Wow, a lame man told to take up your pallet and walk. Wow. Go on and on and on. He didn't come to wow us. He didn't come just to give us some teachings. He came to be a sin offering. He was born to die. He was born to die in a specific way that had been spoken of by the prophets for thousands of years. He came to be an offering for sin. He came to fulfill what that lamb was speaking of when it was offered on an altar, but it could not fully accomplish. Fourthly, in that flesh, in that offering, Paul says God condemned sin. He condemned sin. That is, in in the flesh or the humanity of Jesus, real and sinless, although made sin for our sin. He said to the Corinthians, he said, you know, he who knew no sin became sin on that cross so that we who don't have any righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. I mean, the truth of the the work of of salvation that, that Paul is unfolding here in these first four verses, justification, no condemnation, sanctification, life in the Spirit, so clear, so beautiful. And then he clarifies, just so we don't misunderstand, that the ultimate reason God sent his son and condemned him to death for our sin is that our sin might be condemned in him, not in ourselves. See, the importance of what Paul is saying here is this. There is this righteousness that is required for us to have relationship with God. And it's a righteousness that we cannot attain ourselves. It's a righteousness that we cannot work up. Try as we may. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Him who died. In our place. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, you understand that the main purpose for which you have been given life in Christ, if you are in Christ, the main purpose is for holiness, righteousness, not self righteousness, not phony holiness. Not holier than thouness, but genuine and true holiness. Holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. 
Holiness is the, is the ultimate purpose of you coming to Christ. The end that God had in view when he sent his son is not just our justification only, but it's through the freedom from the condemnation of the law. It, it's holiness of walking in him and being changed in his likeness, which is a lifelong journey, lifelong experience. It consists of, of having the law fulfilled within us. See there, Paul, Paul makes it clear. He says, for what the law couldn't do, weak as it was, God did, sending his son in the likeness of human flesh as an offering of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Look at this. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the requirement of the law? Think about that. What is the requirement of the law for you, for me? The requirement of the law is absolute, complete, and total perfection. You, you want to get into heaven? you got to be perfect. You gotta be holy. You gotta be righteous. Well, there's the bad news. It's bad news if you're trying to do it on your own. It's devastating news if you're trying to do it on your own. But if you're in Christ, he has done that. He has given you His righteousness. He has clothed you in that righteousness. He has given you righteousness at your very heart, at the very core of your being. And He said, now I'm going to work that out. It's not perfect yet. It's still a process. It's still this sanctification process. But I'm going to do it in your life. That's what he does. And we say, well, I wish I looked more like him. I wish I was more Christ-like. I wish I did know the, fulfilled, the fulfillment of righteousness in my life. Let me tell you something. Positionally, that's where it is. And there's no condemnation. And there's liberty. And there's freedom. Set free from the law. Set free from sin. But it won't be fully realized until we see him face to face, till you see him face to face. You see, that's holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is the work of the Holy Spirit. As you walk in him and walk in Christ, and as we see this freedom from the law that's proclaimed clearly, fulfilled. But, but Romans 7 makes it clear that freedom is not freedom to disobey. We did that without freedom. We did that in bondage to sin. We, we disobeyed all the time. The freedom is now to obey. 
The freedom is now to run free as the wind, as a train runs free on its tracks. We can do much. We can see much. We can experience greatly the presence of God in our life by His Holy Spirit. But it's not, it's not to disobey. On contrary, the law of obedience of the people of God is so important to God that He sent His Son to die for us and sent His Spirit to live in us in order to secure it. In order to secure it in your life, God has given that. Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace. The Father sending His Son into the world and the Spirit into our hearts that we might be changed. Look at Paul in Romans 7. Because the Spirit is present within him, he is struggling. I'm doing what I don't want to do. I'm not doing what I know I should do. I, I'm, who's going to deliver me from this, from this mess that I find myself in? And he says finally, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where the freedom's found. That's where freedom is found for every person is in Christ. In union with him that sets us free. In union with Him that gives us life. In union with Him that brings forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness. Now, now you may be here this morning. You may, you may have been a Christian for years. And you say, man, I, I ought to be beyond that struggling now, shouldn't I? Yeah, you ought to be, but you're probably not. I ought to be, but I'm not. But the good news is I'm struggling. <laughs> The good news is, when I, when I find myself being disobedient to Him and struggling in some area, I struggle with it. The Holy Spirit is there saying, Haynes, you blew it again, but I'm here to cover it. Pick you up, get you started right again. You know, it's not me doing it, it's Him doing it. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I tell people all the time that come to me struggling and say, I just don't know if I'm a Christian or not because I, I, I find myself struggling with sin and I hate my sin and I just don't know if I'm really a believer or not. I say, thank God, you, 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 you're showing evidence of it. Look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, because the person who's not in Christ, the person who does not have righteousness being worked out in their life, the person who does not have the Spirit indwelling with them, they don't struggle with sin. They love it. They're happy in it. They're glad for it. There's no conviction. There's no struggle. But the struggle shows that the Spirit is indwelling. The Spirit is working. And that's what Paul wants you to see in these four verses. You've been set free. And part of that freedom, we're struggling to understand it. But being in the Word, worship, Prayer, seeking His face, looking without rather than within, looking for His guidance in His Word and through prayer. That's the way we grow as believers. And that's the way we begin to experience the joy. The 
joy of our salvation, the joy of our freedom, the joy of knowing no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. I got to tell you, that's powerful. And that's important. Heed it. Read it. Eat it. Devour it. And if you're in Christ, glory in it. If you're not in Christ, seek His grace. Seek His face. Say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't understand how you're at work in me. And I, show me, Father. Show me in your word. Perhaps, perhaps lead me to faith in Christ for the first time. Away from religion and into God's provision. Let's pray. As you're praying, this morning, if you're here and you are in Christ, would you just right now give thanks that you've been set free from the law of sin from the law and from sin you've been set free will you will you also pray right now about the battles that are going on in your life and maybe confess To God that you've been trying to do it by the law in your own strength and ask him to work in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit and will you pray right now if you're in Christ that he will give you the strength and the wisdom to walk according to the Holy Spirit not according to your own flesh which wars against the Spirit within us? Did you pray those things this morning? Did you pray for sanctification? Would you pray for holiness in your life? And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, you never trusted Christ, would you, would you look to the cross and see there that he came to die as an offering for sin. And would you just cry out to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Draw me to yourself. Save me. Put me in Christ and Christ in me, which is really our only hope. The Spirit is at work in each of your lives. Would you listen? what the Spirit is doing and saying by His Word?
Father, we commit this time to you to do your work in our lives for your glory. Help us rejoice in you. Help us find real joy in you. And teach us righteousness. And build us up in your righteousness. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name.